part two to what I shared last night. Um, and so with that in mind, I'd love for you to turn to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 7 is where we're going to start off and then eventually find our way across to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm not sure how many uh, Lord of the Rings fans there are here. Great. Awesome. Um, but even if you're not, I think most of you will know that the Lord of the Rings is not just a story of a hairy toad hobbit uh, by the name of Frodo Baggins, but it is also a story about the survival of elves and dwarves and hobbits and men from Rohan and Gondor. And also, it's a story about goodness versus evil and the survival of civilization. And in so many respects, it's a story within a story within another story. And I use this illustration because when we come to understanding the scriptures and understanding what God is wanting to say through his words, in many respects, God is wanting to speak to us at different levels. He's wanting to speak to us in the context of our own lives and in the context of our families. Uh, but also, God wants to speak to us in the context of the local churches that we are a part of and maybe ministries that we lead within local churches. But also, there's a context of those local churches that we are a part of uh, partnering together as part of a translocal ministry and working together with those churches and with the translocal team into not just this nation, but also into the nations of the world. And Tyron, who leads the translocal team, has often said that it is so important to understand the Bible's teaching and the Bible's application in the context of those three things. We need to understand the Word of God in the context of our own lives and in the families that we are a part of, which is in the context of the local churches that we are a part of, which is actually in the context of the translocal team that we work alongside. In America, there's actually a fourth size of a Starbucks cup, even bigger than this one. Um, and so if I was in America, I'd get that fourth cup. And there's even the context of translocal ministries working side by side into the nations of, of the world. And what I want to share today, uh, I think really applies, uh, this truth applies to that. So what I want to ask you to do is to do your best to, to hear what I want to say, not just in the context of your own life, but to consider the truth in the context also of the ministry that perhaps you lead or the local church that you are a part of. And then just for those who are leading local churches or a part of leadership teams within local churches, consider these truths that I'm going to share in the context of how your local church partners with other church, other churches into this nation and into the nations of the world. I asked last night, let me just put this down. I asked last night the, the question now of what are the promises of God? And I kind of want to just... Uh, uh, use that as a link uh, back to yesterday's sermon. What are the promises of God? And I love what Laura brought last night about reminding us that the promises of God can, in, in so many respects, only be attained as we lay those promises down at the promise keeper, at the feet of the promise keeper. And the reason for that is because if we are taking, if we are going after promises that we can attain, that we can achieve, I suspect those promises are not big enough. If we can take hold of those things, if we are able to, to kind of grab hold of and execute on those promises in our own strength, 
I suspect those promises aren't probably from God. And I know that's a challenging, perhaps a bold thing to say. But God wants us to go after things that are far bigger than our ability to take hold of. And I would add as well that God wants us to take hold of things that require us to lean into him, but also that require us to depend on one another. God wants us to take hold of his promises together with others around us. And that's what I want to speak on uh, this morning is taking hold of God's promises together with one another. There's a verse in Isaiah 58, verse 12, which I scribbled down uh, this morning during worship. It, it's this, this. It says, your people we will rebuild ancient ruins and will raise up age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Isaiah 58, verse 12. And this verse has been on my heart almost since the day we landed uh, here on Tuesday. And the sense of us in this nation wanting to, to kind of reach back and, and repair age-old foundations and repair broken walls. And it's almost, I sense, it's almost a looking back to what once was in the UK. But, but I feel the Lord is challenging you to not just reach back into uh, 300, 400 years ago, but to reach back to what we read in Scripture. That's the legacy we need to be going after. What God did 400 years ago, God did 400 years ago. But our heritage as the followers of Jesus is reaching back to the time of Christ and using and looking to Jesus as our example. So as you read, as you read the Old Testament in particular, and also into the New Testament, and we never had time to look at this last night in the book of, of, of Joshua, I, I, there's a second pattern that begins to emerge as God begins to uh, uh, drop faith promises into his people. And, and the pattern that begins to emerge is, is God, firstly, we, said, we touched on this last night, God speaks, God reveals, God makes his promises known. We, we, we looked at that last night. And this we touched on too. God not only speaks, but God begins to stir faith in his men and women. God speaks and reveals his promises. He begins to stir faith in our hearts, in the, in the hearts of men and women. But then there's a third thing that God begins to do. And we're going to look at this pattern uh, uh, this morning. God surrounds his people with men and women so that together we take hold of the promises of God. God speaks, God stirs faith in hearts, and then God surrounds us with people so that together we can take hold of the promises of God. We looked at this uh, last night. It's true of Joshua. Uh, Joshua chapter 1. Moses, my servant, is dead. I loved what Rob shared this morning about, you know, th th that was then. You know, the, the, the lockdown has happened. We need to come out of that lockdown. Moses, my servant, is dead. Those, those times, those ways are for, for yesterday. God is bringing us out of that. Moses, my servant, is dead. And God says to Joshua, now then, get ready. God's speaking. And then he goes on to say, uh, uh, he, he says, be strong and courageous. God speaks, get ready to cross. Be strong and courageous. He's, he's stirring faith within, within Joshua. But then he goes on to say, tell the tribes of Israel, get ready to cross the Jordan. Do you, do you see he's now adding people? He's surrounding Joshua with people so that together with others, he steps into the promises of God. 
It's true of Gideon. Gideon receives a promise from God. His faith begins to stir. And what does God do? He adds 300 warriors to go with Gideon to take the promise of God. It's true of David. David surrounds him with his mighty men. It's true of Peter in the New Testament. You know that moment where Peter is on his boat and he has had an unsuccessful night of fishing. And Jesus, who's not a fisherman, stands on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he says to Peter, cast your net on the other side. Jesus speaks. And faith begins to stir in Peter. It doesn't say this, but essentially Peter says, Lord, you're not a fisherman, but because you say so, I'm going to do what you said. And there's such a catch of fish that what does Peter have to do? He has to call in other boats to begin to, to take in the promise of God. So we must be alert to and aware of this pattern because I, I sense prophetically that God is beginning to, to call on us as the people of God to just be aware of this pattern too. God is speaking in this time. God is speaking this weekend. God is speaking in this season. God is stirring faith in our hearts, I trust, this weekend. God is stirring faith in our hearts in this season to go after his promises. But friends, we're never going to take them alone. God has adding people. I want you seriously to look around this room. Just real quickly look around this room. These are the men and women and others who can't be here, obviously. But this is a representation of the men and women that God is surrounding us with so that together we can take hold of his promises. But there's a clear warning in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 7. It's the time, as you are probably familiar with, where Achan sins. Achan takes hold of something that was set aside for and devoted to the Lord. And it's, it's quite a jarring moment in the book of Joshua. If, you, if you're reading Joshua from chapter 1, we, we see the nation of Israel crossing the Jordan. And, and they come across that first fortified city of Jericho. And, and God miraculously gives Jericho to them. And, then, and, and the, the people of God are, are on the move. And then this jarring moment happens where, where Achan sins. And it's almost like the people of God kind of ground to a halt, as it were. And it's a very similar situation in the book of Acts. Think about the book of Acts where, where uh, uh, the gospel is preached in Acts chapter 2 after the Spirit is poured out. And, and thousands are saved. And, and, and Peter and John are performing signs, wonders, and miracles. And then you come to Acts chapter 5. And, and Ananias and Sapphira uh, lie to the Holy Spirit. And they are, they are struck down. And, and I think it's important. And I want to just uh, highlight one or two things that I sense God is wanting to remind us of. That we can learn from Achan. This is not a, this is not a message of condemnation. But just a, a, a message that I feel the Lord wants to bring. Just to alert us that we would not make the mistakes that Achan made. So that as a people we can move, continue to move forward. And take hold of the promises of God. And I think the first thing. There are two things that I want to just highlight. About Achan. Uh, essentially two, two aspects of, of one point. Achan forgot his identity. Yeah. Achan forgot his identity. And the, and, and the first way that he forgot or lost sight of his identity. Was that he, he forgot that he was part of this collective people of God. Rob said it this morning. Uh, about isolation about lockdown taking us out of community as it were 
and bringing us into isolation. And friends, that's a dangerous thing, to, a dangerous place to find ourselves in. Look at Joshua chapter 7, verse 21. Achan describes what happened. And you'll notice the word uh, um, I a couple of times. When I saw the plunder, uh, when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them and they are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. I saw and I coveted and so I took and I hid. And friends, that's not how the people of God take hold of God's promises. We are not called to take hold of promises by, by looking at what we want, what we want to take hold of, and then taking hold of that. John the Baptist made it so clear in, I think it's in, John chap, in John's Gospel, chapter 2, when he said, a person can only receive what is given to them from heaven. You see, God doesn't call us to, to, to see what we want and to know that we can't take it, but we take it anyway, and then we have to hide it because we don't want other people to see. Listen to the Lord in, um, in Joshua chapter 7, verse 11. Remember, Achan is the one who has sinned. But look at what the Lord says in verse 11 of Joshua 7. Israel, not Achan, Israel has sinned. And they have violated my, they have violated my covenant. They have taken. They have lied. And, and essentially, what I think we can learn from this this first point is is Achan got isolated from the people of God. It's a dangerous place to be at. We don't have time to to turn there, but in in First Samuel 17, which is the account of David and Goliath. If you study that passage, you can actually learn uh, some of the strategies that Goliath and the Philistines used to attack the Israelites. And it, it shows us some of the strategies that, that the devil can use to, to attack us. And, and one of the things that Goliath does is he tries to isolate an, a single man out of the, armies of, out of the army of God. And he says this. Uh, he says, this is, this is Goliath. Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of God? Sorry, the servants of Saul. And then he says this, choose a man and have him come down and fight me. And friends, I think that's one of the regular strategies of the enemy is to isolate people out of the community of God. Because when we are isolated, we, are, we become vulnerable to hearing his voice, not the voice of God that often comes to us through others. What happens when a child trips and falls when they're playing in, in a play yard or outside? They trip and fall and they hurt themselves and then immediately they stand up and they cry, mom or dad. And they run straight to their family. But for some reason, as followers of Jesus, and let's be honest, sometimes when we trip and fall and make a mistake, we play the silly game of isolating ourselves to see who's going to come after us. That's not the game that we should be playing. We sh when we trip and fall, who we need is community around us. The devil is trying his utmost to isolate us. And let me say this too. 
It's possible to be physically present, but isolated in your heart. It's possible to be here and yet to be just keeping things at arm's length to see what the Lord is doing. Don't forget, maybe this applies to you as an individual. Or maybe this applies to something of the ministry that you lead, or perhaps even the church that you lead. This is not a time for us to be isolated in any way. What happened? Achan forgot his identity as part of the people of God. The second thing that I think what happened to Achan is that he forgot his identity as part of God's kingdom of light, bringing light into darkness. He not only forgot his identity as part of the people of God, but he he forgot his identity as part of this kingdom of light that was breaking into darkness. Essentially, that's what God was using Israel to do. They were were coming into this promised land, this land of darkness, and, and as they were following the leading of the Lord, they were bringing light, light, the light of God's kingdom was beginning to break into the land of Canaan. And and friends, that's not what we are called to do. That's who we are. We are not just called to bring light into darkness. We are light. We are the light of the Lord bringing light into darkness. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 says this. Listen to this. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So therefore live as children of light. Paul is not saying in any way you you are now living in the light of the Lord. And he's not saying you are becoming light in the Lord. He is saying you are, we are light in the Lord. So therefore live as children of light. In other words, become who you already are in Jesus. 27 years ago, I was pronounced husband to my wife, Deborah. And I've been taking 27 years to become what was announced over me on that day. I'm becoming who I already am. We took an American citizenship uh, six years ago, six or seven years ago. And we had a swearing in ceremony where it was declared over us that we were or we became citizens of America. We did not walk out of that ceremony with an American accent. We were declared to be citizens of America, but we are becoming who we already were announced on that day. And over time, we're changing the way we live because we're becoming who we already are. I don't call the things that babies suck on a dummy any longer. We call them passies. The side of the road is called a sidewalk, not a pavement. It's not a tomato, it's a tomato. It's not water, it's water. We're becoming who we already are. And that's true of us in Jesus, friends. We are holy and blameless in God's sight. That's a declaration that the Father says over us. And you might not feel that, but that's what the Word of God says. And over time, we are becoming what God declares over us. Friends, when you and I sin, it's not... It's not law and condemnation and guilt and shame that comes after us. That's the kingdom of darkness. When I speed in America, well, I went, sorry, if I were to speed in America, if I were to speed in America, the South African police doesn't come after me. 
They've got absolutely no jurisdiction. It is the Chicago police because it, that is the kingdom in which I live. So when, when we sin, it's not condemnation and guilt and shame that come after us. It's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, not condemnation or guilt or shame. It's absolutely, as a, as a people who are, who are part of this kingdom of light, growing in maturity in Christ is not about don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and don't do that. It's about understanding how the Father sees us. Ephesians 1, we are holy and blameless in His sight. It's understanding what has happened to me at the cross. That the moment you and I confess Jesus Christ as Lord, we were united with Christ. We were placed in Christ. We were clothed with the perfection and the beauty and the holiness and the purity of Jesus. We were seated in heavenly places at the Father's right hand. I was in business for many years. Um, about eight or nine years, I, I, I was part of a a big chemical company back in South Africa. And my job was to set up distribution networks for this company. And so I had the privilege of traveling around the world and ended up kind of raking up these amazing uh, um, airline miles. And I became a platinum member with British Airways, which was came with amazing perks. And I, I remember once I was flying from Mexico City via London back to Johannesburg. And I arrived at the check-in counter and the person checking me in said, Mr. Sudworth, you'll be pleased to know that we have seated you in first class. Now, I did not say to them, wait a minute, that's not true. I'm not seated anywhere. I'm standing in front of you. But their declaration was of something that was about to happen. We have seated you in first class. And so this is the days where there was paper tickets and they gave me my first class ticket and I popped it very proudly in my front pocket and my chest went back and my head went up and I started using silly words like preposterous and inconceivable because that's what first class passengers do. But the certainty of where I was seated changed the way I live here and now. And friends, we're not we're we're on earth. We we are but we are seated in heavenly places in Christ. And the the certainty of that reality needs to change the way we live. We are citizens of heaven living here on earth. I challenged our church a couple of weeks ago that at Halloween in, on, uh, in America, and I think Halloween is beginning to take root here in England. It's, yeah, let me now comment on Halloween right now. Seven billion dollars. That's billion with a B is spent every year on dressing up as people who are dead. And it's shocking to hear that. But Christians do it all the time. We dress up almost every day in the old self of who we were. We are now new creations in Jesus Christ. We need to know who we are. We need to know whose we are so that we can begin to bring the light of God into the places of darkness. And so what I'd love for us to do is if we can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. 
I think one of the challenges facing Christians in the West is that, as I've said, we are becoming ignorant of our identity as the people of God. And the problem is not so much that we aren't where we are called to be. We, we are scattered in the places where God wants us, lawyers and teachers and students and stay-at-home moms and, and, and scientists. God has scattered us. It's not a case of we aren't where we should be. The problem is, is that we aren't who we should be where we already are. We aren't who we should be where we already are. We've lost sight of our identity. We've lost sight of what it means to, to be part of this people of God taking hold of his promises. And I think there is something of God's unity that he wants to restore back into our hearts and restore back into the church. As Rob said, to come out of that place of either physical or, or, or spiritual isolation. And to, to find ourselves knitted back in wholeheartedly. I love that. It's a wonderful Old Testament word. To wholeheartedly knit up, see ourselves knitted back into the community of God so that together we can take hold of his promises. And to do that, I just want to end with just a little teaching out of Ephesians 4 on unity. And what unity looks like. It's, I think sometimes unity feels like a bar of soap in, in a bath. You, you know what that's like when you try to take hold it's there there it is there's unity and you try to grab it and it just pops out of your hand and sometimes i think we can we can view unity like that it just keeps slipping out of our hands but i think god in his infinite wisdom through this text in ephesians chapter 4 gives us some some wonderful handles that we can actually take hold of and we're going to look at that together reading from verse 1 as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Let me just pause there. I, um, I know Russ and his church are working through the, the book of Ephesians, and I wholeheartedly commend them for that. But uh, I love this book of Ephesians. And, and, and Paul writes there, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. And, and I think sometimes we can read that and think, Oh, my calling to be a lawyer, or, or my calling to be a teacher, or my calling to lead a life group. Friends, Paul is speaking about something way more important than that. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians establishes our identity in Christ. It's the calling to be part of the people of God. And what Paul is saying is work, walk worthy of the calling we have received to be part of the people of God that are showing the world what it looks like when Jesus is king. That's the calling. That's the primary responsibility that we have as followers of Jesus. Be completely humble and gentle, verse 2. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. For the sake of time, drop down to verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers to equip his people 
for works of service, to equip the saints for the works of service, so that so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The book of Ephesians speaks often about measure and the reality that Christ me measures in this term called fullness. Christ's measure is always fullness. Then you will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who, who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Four ways from this text that I think we can find unity. Humility, centrality, diversity, and maturity. Humility, centrality, diversity, and maturity. We're going to run through these real quick. The first way to find unity is through humility. And, and verses 2 and 3, Paul couldn't make it clearer. Humility is one of the ways that we are able to find unity. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient with one another. Oh, they, they let me down again. They, they disappointed me again. They offended me again. I'm not good. No. Love is patient. Bearing with one another in love. Making every effort. Friends, I know we are taught in marriage counseling. If you haven't been married, this is what you're going to be taught in marriage counseling. Never use absolute statements to your spouse. You never take out the trash. You always say this, and we are taught not to do that. Paul is using absolute statements. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Friends, Tyron says this often, and I love this. Humility, not pride, is the characteristic of being in the presence of the Father. When we, when we are in the presence of the Father... When we, when we sense his peace upon us and his favor poured out undeservingly by his grace upon us, when we know his presence, we don't come out arrogantly. We come out with a sense of humility, a sense of a, a submitted and yielded heart. And of course, like in everything, our greatest example is Jesus. Paul writes in, in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, who being in the very nature God, humbled himself to the point of death. Jesus, in the very nature God, humbled himself to the point of death. Think about what the significance of you and I being baptized in water was. It, it, it symbolizes this, this dying to self. This dying to our pride, this dying to arrogance, this, this humbling of ourselves so that we can be raised up in Jesus. 
D.L. Moody makes this comment about how pride and self-reliance will always get in the way of, the, of attracting the presence of God. He says this, and I love this quote, I believe firmly that at the moment our hearts are emptied of pride and selfishness and ambition and self-seeking and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Ghost will come and will fill every corner of our hearts. But if we are full of pride and conceit and ambition and self-seeking and, ple and pleasure and the world, there is no room for the Spirit of God. And I believe many a person is praying to God to fill them when we are already filled with something else. Before we pray that God would fill us, I believe we ought to pray him to empty us. There must be an emptying before there can be a filling. The first way to find unity is through humility. The second way to find unity in verse 4 and 5 is centrality. Keeping the main thing the main thing. Majoring on the, ma on the major things. And again, Paul makes this so clear. We, we constantly find ourselves wanting to, to, to get involved in the obscure things that are on the side. The, the obscure things that shouldn't be distracting us. The, the obscure things that shouldn't be taking up our time. But for some reason, we, we find ourselves drawn to these things. And, and Paul says we are, we are part of one body. We are filled with one spirit. We have one hope and we serve one Lord and we have one faith and, and one baptism and we worship one God. Seven things that unite us. And we need to be keeping those things as central. Let's not focus on what divides us. Let's focus on what unites us. The centrality of Jesus. The, the centrality of the word of God. The fact that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are in Christ, that we, are, we have one baptism. We are placed into the body of Jesus. We are part of one church, the church of Jesus Christ. The peripheral stuff needs to stay on the periphery. The second way to find unity is through centrality. The third way to find unity, and this sounds a little counterintuitive, but Paul makes it very clear what, what this looks like is diversity. When we celebrate our diversity, we, 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 we focus on the centrality of Jesus. And when all of our eyes are on our King of Kings, we can celebrate the diversity of gifting that we have. I, 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 had the, I was preaching on um, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, many years ago. Um, it is now through the church. Uh, um, it is now through the church that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to principalities and powers. And this, this picture that I got is of the church being a prism and, and this one white light. Sorry, this is a science illustration. Uh, I know I'm a science geek. But this pure, perfect white light of God, uh, of God's wisdom and grace being poured out onto the church. And the church is like a prism which, which divides up that light into its many facets and colors. And that's something of what Paul is trying to say here. This, this, per, this perfect light of Jesus shines upon the church of Jesus Christ. And then, the, and then this diversity of gifting upon each one of us. We, we each get to, to display aspects of God's glory. There's no one in this room. There's no one on planet Earth that gets to display the, the, sing, the singular perfection of Jesus. But it's when we come together in our diversity of gifting. 
when we celebrate one another's gifting and make space for one another's gifting, that together we get to show the world, not just the world, principalities and powers. This is of, this is of cosmic importance, friends. The church meeting on Sundays, CNN won't, won't, won't tell you this. BBC News won't tell you this. When church gathers on Sundays, it's the most important thing happening on planet Earth. That's the importance of the local church. Because through that, principalities and powers are seeing the manifest wisdom of God. I pray, friends, you and I would rediscover this passion for local church. And as Rob said, coming together as the people of God, not isolated. I love what you said about making it too easy. We have the same thing in, in, back home. We are trying our hardest to take things offline, not because we are insensitive, but we want to encourage people to gather as the bride of Christ to display his glory. Verse 7, we're told, that grace gifts, gifts of grace are given to every single one of us. Friends, every one of us here has a, has a measure of God's grace that enables you to be utilized by him through the gifts that he has given you. Every single one of us have been given grace by God to show, to, to, to be utilized in him. But because we have this variety of gifts, God has to give leaders, God has to give uh, leaders to help uh, uh, bring us together in those variety of gifts, to equip us for the work of ministry. And, and what's the result? Verse 12, the result is that the body of Christ is built up and strengthened. Not just, not just part of the body, the entire body is built up. I, I'm not a gym freak, as you can probably see, but I'm, I, I've seen people who forget leg day workout every day, every week. And from here up, they are incredibly built up, but they have these spindly little legs. And that's not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is built up in every respect. And this continues, verse 13, until we reach unity. Our son is not much of a, a, a sports guy. But we tried just to kind of give him exposure to see whether he would fit in. And when he was much younger, in his, when he was five or six, we took him to basketball lessons. And this is probably true for football here in, in, in the UK. But when kids are like five and six, uh, wherever the ball is, there is just a mass of kids running around the field. In basketball, there are five aside, so ten kids. In, in football, you know, the goalkeeper plus ten 10. So 20 kids literally running around wherever the ball goes. And the parents are shouting, no, Johnny, go go there. And it's so counterintuitive for the kids. No, the ball's here. I need to go there. But the coach knows that a diversity of positions enables the common unity of winning the game to be achieved. The coach comes in and says, no, son, you need to be here. Despite the fact that the ball is there, because there will come a time when you will be needed together for us to achieve the common goal. And that's what leaders do. Leaders are given a discernment or a wisdom or a grace from God to be able to say, all right, let's figure out where we need to be positioned for the common goal of advancing the kingdom of God and seeing people saved. And that's what leaders are called to do. We are more 
unified and we are more mature when everyone in the church serves, when everyone gets to play their part. We find unity through humility, through centrality, through diversity, and then lastly, through maturity. Verse 13, we are, Paul writes, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Oh, what a beautiful, what a beautiful line. Becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Immaturity means we are, we are tossed back and forth. Oh, God's in this ministry. We need to focus on this. And then three weeks later, no, 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 I was wrong. God's in this. God's all about prophecy. Oh, no, no, God's all about Bible teaching. No, we are not caught. And it often happens at the expense of people. People are left in our wake when we are tossed back and forth. But there's a stability and clarity that comes with maturity. I talked on, uh, on Wednesday night about Mark chapter 1. Same passage that Rob referred to. And, and, and it tells about Jesus doing all of this incredible ministry. But then early the next morning, he went off and he spent time with his father. And he came out of that time. The disciples wanted him to do this and that. He said, no, this is why I've come. There was a clarity. There was a focus to Jesus. Friends. Let's not be part of, let's not be those churches that are running after this and that and everything else. There needs to be a, 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 a stability and a clarity of focus as we spend time in the presence of the Father, listening to his voice and knowing what he has called us to do. And maturity means sometimes laying down our preferences. Maturity means sometimes laying down even some of our personal convictions if it doesn't align with the Word of God. Humility, centrality, diversity, maturity. Look at verse 15. Unity means that Jesus Christ is the common goal. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. In the world where there's a call for unity, generally it's one person saying, become like me. In the church, the call for unity is together we become like Jesus. And that's the difference. Jesus is our example in humility. Jesus is the reason for our centrality. Jesus is the creator of diversity. And Jesus is our grounds for maturity. Our eyes are fixed on him and on him alone. I'd love for us to close our eyes if we can. I just think in some way a response is, is needed.